Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And a couple months ago, we put out a call for Civil War podcast ideas since it is the 150th anniversary of the Civil War and all. And listeners have actually sent us some really cool suggestions. Quite a list going. Yeah, we have quite a list going, and we don't want you guys to think that we haven't looked at them. We're looking at them and just trying to figure out the best way to sort of organize them and approach them in a way that makes sense. But luckily, the observance of this anniversary is going on for the next four years or so. So we'll have plenty of time to sift through them and address some of those requests um, as we go along. In the meantime, though, we wanted to go ahead and take a look at some interesting characters who participated in a side of the Civil War that we are particularly fascinated by, and that's espionage. Who isn't fascinated by espionage? Yeah, it was actually something of an evolving art during the Civil War, but it became invaluable for, for political and military strategy at the time. Yeah, at the time, though, espionage wasn't something that was taught at military academies like West Point. I mean, obviously, if it was evolving. So spying was mostly left up to civilians like this episode's subject, Alan Pinkerton. And he essentially organized the first Union espionage. So he's a really interesting character in that sense. But his work around this time was essentially the foundation for the U.S. Secret Service as well. So he's got a a dual role going already. if you haven't heard of him because of his connections to the Civil War, you might have heard of his work as a private detective. Some people call him the world's first private eye. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, um, but there were definitely private detectives before. Still, though, Pinkerton did have a unique style. He certainly helped develop the art of being a private eye. He did, and he also founded the country's first national detective agency, Pinkerton's National Detective Agency, which became quite successful and famous, and its organizational structure was actually used as a model for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. So several of the agency's assignments, catching outlaws of the Wild West and some strike-breaking cases as well, would make great podcast topics. But here, for time's sake, we're just going to focus on his involvement with the war. But first, how did he become a spy in the first place? He he literally stumbled into it as we are going to find out. So we have one version of Pinkerton's early years that's generally accepted, even though not everyone goes along with that. Uh, for instance, Bruce Jury, who edited an anthology of Pinkerton's autobiographical writings, said, quote, Pinkerton conflated stories and contradicted himself all the time. So makes him an interesting guy, but it also makes it sort of tough to to trust him. Yeah, that's true. And so some of these details might be embellished, but here are some of the basics that most sources accept as fact. Pinkerton was born in Glasgow, Scotland on August 25th, 1819. His father was a police sergeant who died when Alan was young, leaving the family in a pretty bad position money-wise. So Alan was apprenticed to a cooper or a barrel maker by age 15, and that's how he made a living. So just an aside here, just to show you how sources can differ and why some people aren't really sure if he embellished or not. Some sources say that his father lived till 1841, so that wouldn't have... Supporting the family. Exactly. Exactly. And was a weaver instead of a police sergeant. So some details may have been 
something changed here. But regardless, Pinkerton became involved with a militant labor group known as the Chartists, who sought political and social reform. His involvement in Chartism actually led the authorities to issue a warrant for his arrest. So he ended up having to escape to America in 1842, along with his new wife, Joan Carfrey. And this was supposedly on the very day that of their wedding that they had to do this, that they had to flee. So pretty dramatic honeymoon. Yeah, dramatic and also maybe a little bit exaggerated. Maybe a little made up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first U.S. city that Pinkerton lived in was Chicago. And the next year he moved to a town called Dundee, Illinois. It's about 40 miles away. And he set up a successful Cooper business there, a, a shop. And one day in around 1846, 1847, he was out chopping wood on a deserted island on a nearby river. So obviously, if you're making barrels, you need wood to make them with. And some people said that Pinkerton was was thrifty and he didn't want to pay for wood for barrel staves. So he went and chopped it down himself. But regardless, he's out on this island. And while he's there, he discovered a gang of counterfeiters and they didn't see him. So he went back to town and he got the sheriff. The sheriff was able to catch the gang red handed. And after that, the sheriff offered him a job. Pretty yeah. good, good discovery, I guess. Yeah, he was offered the position of deputy sheriff of Kane County. So it was sort of a side gig for him. He still had his Cooper business, um, although after a few more successful cases, he was able to sell that business and move to Chicago to pursue a career as a full-time private detective. Sounds like a movie beginning, right? It really does. But initially, most of Pinkerton's clients were government agencies. So it's not like Maybe he was not just... quite as glamorous as you're, you're thinking. Right. It, for example, one of his clients was the U.S. Treasury Department. They hired him to find other counterfeiter gangs. They figured, hey, he's good at this. Let's, let's put him on the case. Um, the U.S. Post Office also had him looking into mail theft. And the sheriff of Cook County enlisted his help in some of his toughest cases. So he eventually also appointed him deputy sheriff of of Cook County. Um, he still did private work on the side as well, too, though. Yeah, so he's got a lot of different gigs going on. But by 1855, Pinkerton left the police force to start the Northwest Police Agency, which was a private detective agency that was really the first of its kind. It had a sign with a wide open eye on it that became its symbol. So a real private eye kind of deal. Yeah, and you can Google that symbol. I mean, you can look it up and see it and you'll probably be like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Definitely. And I mean, the company slogan, too, you've probably heard that it's we never sleep so he's this this is sort of laying the foundations for for what we think of as private detectives for sure yeah so he is a detective at this point and also a sort of businessman he's growing into that role as well and at first it was just pinkerton and about three to five other employees and they were specialized in railway theft cases in illinois specifically at that time most of the state's railroads ran through the countryside where the police really couldn't protect them or prevent employee theft so they could be held up or or somebody working on board the train could steal yeah it could take some of whatever they were shipping you know in their freight cars or you know pilfer um, ticket money, as we'll see. The detectives, they did their work disguised as passengers, since many of the trains did have both passenger and freight cars. And right away, they caught a conductor who was pocketing money, as we mentioned, and railroad employees unloading merchandise in the middle of nowhere. So that's how they would steal stuff without people detecting them. That's the equivalent of it dropped off the back of the truck. Right. (laughs) So railroad workers obviously hated them, but owners began to rely on them. And by 1861, Pinkerton and his men had been employed to police railroads in other states, too. 
Yeah, and it was while he was out on one of those out-of-state jobs investigating threats by Southerners against a northern railroad company in Philadelphia that Pinkerton overheard a piece of information that eventually led to his involvement in the Civil War. Or did he? This is going to be the big crux of the matter here. Yeah, because it's still up for debate whether Pinkerton's story was actually true. But in January 1861, he claimed that he heard rumors of a plot to assassinate President-elect Abraham Lincoln. Supposedly, a group of young Southern slave owners calling themselves the Knights of the Golden Circle planned to shoot Lincoln in February 1861 as he passed through Baltimore on his way to Washington, D.C., The existence of that plot, though, has never been proven. Yeah, and it really proved to be um, kind of an embarrassment, as as we're going to find out. But Pinkerton convinced Lincoln's advisors to have Lincoln change his plans and travel incognito on a different train in the middle of the night. And Pinkerton rode shotgun in the caboose, and he had agents placed at all the bridges and the major crossings, and they'd give him all clear signals with lanterns. So two long flashes, a pause, and then two more flashes. And the train did arrive safely in Washington, but people weren't really impressed, or at least not everyone was impressed. And a lot of people saw Lincoln's actions as cowardly, just kind of silly. And just when they wanted to have a courageous, dignified leader, they have this guy traveling in disguise. And of course, you know, we don't, we don't think anything of something like this now. Of course you would, you would try to protect the candidate and you would recognize any threat, even if you don't know what's necessarily behind it. But, Not at this time. Yeah, people made fun of him, and it's unclear whether he... I I don't know if he was actually traveling in disguise, but newspapers reported that he was because he showed up in a soft wool hat instead of a stovepipe when he got off at Washington, got off the train. And so people, when people saw this, they spread the story that he was wearing a scotch cap and a plaid shawl. And Pinkerton's code message back to Harrisburg was pretty laughable, too, at the time. It said, quote, plums delivered nuts safely. (laughs) Pinkerton being the plums and Lincoln being the nuts. Yeah, that's still pretty laughable. (laughs) The worst code ever, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really go along with a serious covert operation. But it also didn't help that they weren't able to prove that there was a real threat. The mayor of Baltimore, for example, had the rumors investigated and said that they were baseless. So what really happened here? Some think that Pinkerton just made the whole thing up to get a little bit of glory. Still others, however, including Dorothea Dix and some detectives from New York City who came down to investigate the situation, thought that Lincoln was really wise to do what he did. Yeah. I mean, whether the, the safe side. Yeah. Whether the threats are serious enough, it's better to stay on the safe side. Yeah. But Lincoln was still pretty embarrassed by the whole thing, maybe especially the information about the shawl, even if that was made up. Yeah. Um, but he didn't take it out on Pinkerton. You'd think maybe he just wouldn't trust that guy anymore. Instead, he gave the detective another opportunity. In fact, a much grander opportunity. Yeah, so that April, after the attack on Fort Sumter, Lincoln asked Pinkerton to organize a federal secret service, which was basically a network of spies that could inform on Southern sympathizers around Washington. And they were really good at this. For example, Pinkerton caught a Southern spy and socialite named Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who'd been gleaning vital information from her suitor at the time, Senator Henry Wilson of the Military Affairs Committee. 
When it came to military work, though, Pinkerton's Secret Service was much less effective. He directed intelligence operations for General George B. McClellan, who I'm sure all of you guys have heard of, after McClellan assumed command of the Army of the Potomac. Yeah, and McClellan had already known Pinkerton. He knew him from his role as a railroad executive before the Civil War, but he didn't get such a great reputation as a commander, McClellan, that is. A lot of people thought that he was overly cautious. You know, he had built this great grand army and he he kind of just wanted to keep it together and, and not go out and use it. He was also judged for always seeming to be running away from the enemy instead of running toward them and, and engaging them. Yeah, he seemed anxious. I mean, others who commented thought that he almost was looking for any reason not to confront the enemy. And um, it seems like Pinkerton kind of gave it to him. So it probably wasn't entirely his fault. He had asked for these reports from Pinkerton's Secret Service so that uh, so that McClellan would know the size of the approach Confederate armies. And according to an article by Lloyd Lewis in the Journal of the Illinois State Historical Society, the statements Pinkerton turned in usually overestimated the enemy's strength by about 100%. For example, on June 26th, Pinkerton estimated the enemy at 200,000 men when actually it was only like 80,000. Yeah, so that makes you reconsider McClellan's cautious reputation a little bit if he's getting numbers like that. So We have to wonder, why did Pinkerton mess up so badly? Why were those numbers so far off? And Lloyd theorizes that it's because Pinkerton was inexperienced in war, and he also hadn't yet established the organizational system that would become the true hallmark of his agency. And eventually, that organization system was used by all military intelligence operations. And it it had to do with assembling a lot of small details, which put together could solve a mystery. I mean, this is later, but Pinkerton's people would send in reports every single day from the field, and those reports were written out and filed systematically by clerks, you know, putting every single little piece together. So the inside of his agency almost looked like it was a big mail order house stacked high with all of these papers and all of this filing going on. But he wasn't to that point during the time he was working for McClellan. Yeah, well, either that or he just didn't apply this method to his work in the war. We're we're not sure. But either way, Lincoln dismissed McClellan in 1862 and Pinkerton was replaced. He did a few things for the government during the war after that, but it was more about catching profiteers, that sort of work. After this, Pinkerton mostly put his energies back into his agency, which he renamed Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. Okay, so his work in the war wasn't a complete success, but Pinkerton's detective business was very successful, especially when it came to protecting property and money, which is sort of how he started out in the first place with his, that counterfeiting gang. And we mentioned his work in the West earlier. His agents, who became widely known as the Pinkertons, hunted down Wild West outlaws like Jesse James and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So, you know, really big names. And their work, or the the Pinkerton's work out there, really helped curb that post-war epidemic of train robbers, too. So the general lawlessness that was going on in the United States at the time. Yeah, and as America started industrializing, which was also what was going on at the time, Pinkerton's agents also started working for company bosses and against labor unions as strikebreakers. And this is kind of ironic because of Pinkerton's background as a chartist, but Pinkerton at this stage of the game, saw strikes and riots as a threat to society. Yeah, obviously an older man, too, and in a different place in his life than he was back in Scotland. Yeah, his whole thing was about 
catching people who were doing things counter to society, you, you know, people he saw as enemies, bad guys. And to him, people who were striking. And a lot of times in those days, strikings led to riots. I mean, obviously, they were considered enemies to him. Yeah. And if we sort of consider his legacy as a whole, too, despite some of his choices and those questions about the validity of the Lincoln assassination threat, most considered Pinkerton to be really amazing at what he did and honest and diligent at his work, too. He guaranteed to turn down any reward. He worked only for an agreed-upon flat fee. So uh, reminded me a little of Elliot Ness or someone, you know, can't be bought. Yep. And he didn't accept divorce cases because according to Dury, he didn't want to, quote, go down into the sewers of humanity or, quote, have his men crawling around in the undergrowth like Peeping Tom. So he, he certainly... Maybe even from a Civil War experience, he knew what he was good at and, and the direction he was he was going to go. Yeah, and he also pioneered certain strategies that are now classic detective moves, like covert surveillance, which was referred to as shadowing, and the assumption of false identities, which now we know is working undercover. He also published 18 books of memoir, and he once wrote, quote, The detective should be hardy, tough, and capable of laboring unknown to those about him. I shall not give up the fight with criminals to the bitter end. And Dublina, you and I were talking about these memoirs earlier. And while Pinkerton has a reputation as being one of the first private eyes, you, you said he also has sort of a reputation as helping start detective books, too. Yeah, that was the gist of this interview that I read with Drury. And he said, I think the way he put it was uh, that... Pinkerton can be considered not just the father of detective, the detective, I should say, the modern detective. He can also be considered the father of the modern detective novel or modern detective, detective fiction. Detective written these memoirs. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of detective fiction, Pinkerton's agents have been featured over the years in various works. And for example, in a Sherlock Holmes story called The Valley of Fear. I know we have a lot of Sherlock Holmes fans since we did the Who is the Real Sherlock Holmes podcast a few months ago. Uh, and and in later James Bond novels as well, there's a character called Felix Leiter who works for Pinkertons. So it makes its appearance here and there. Yeah. And it, we were talking, too, about how how different he is from the, the Sherlock Holmes inspiration. You know, it, it, he's not the intuitive type of detective. He's the smart kind of detective who sort of figures out these new methods like covert surveillance and the assumption of false identities. You know, a, a different different kind of man. Yeah, well, I think uh, since he, as you mentioned earlier, uh, since he fell into his work, his yes. line of work, <laughs> quite literally, we don't have as much information about uh, how he developed these skills of his. He just sort of became a detective and then he developed, yeah, it was just job one day. And then he developed these um, methods, which were so unique at the time, but have become so core to what we think of as the iconic detective. Yeah, for sure. So he died July 1st, 1884, but his company is still around today. It's a subsidiary of Securitas, although now they're more of a, of a security company. So not quite as detective spying as as you might like to think. Yeah, well, now we have the FBI and the Secret Service and all these other agencies, so we don't have a need, really, for... All the private eyes. Yeah, for an agency as Pinkerton's was originally, but it's just another way that you might have heard the Pinkerton's name if you haven't read about him in history books or read about him in novels. But I think that's all the time we have for today to talk about Pinkerton, although... 
I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about them down the road. I mean, the Wild West stuff, especially my votes, my votes in that camp. Sarah's votes for the Wild West stuff. I don't want to talk about the Molly Maguires, a secret society of coal miners that Pinkerton's men infiltrated and everything that went on with that. So definitely more material to delve into there. But if you have anything to contribute to this story that we talked about today, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which we mentioned in close connection to Pinkerton and its its um, history and its operations today, you can look for it on our homepage by searching for FBI at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 